Well, good morning. Good to see everybody. Well, I'll come to our seats. I'll begin with prayer this morning. We've got a lot of wonderful things to cover. Seven, we only have seven slides to get through, but there'll be a lot of reading of scripture. So I also want to tie in this message to what Bob's going to be preaching about today. They fit in very nicely together, I think. So let's begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for our opportunity to gather together as a body that we can celebrate who you are and we can learn more about your glorious promises through your word. I pray, Lord, that as we look at how you desired a tabernacle with us, I pray that these promises would find deep root in our hearts, that they would enable us to persevere into that last day and to live holy lives, all for you, for the sake of your name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning, as you can see, we're only going to be covering two verses, or technically three verses, I guess. But I want to remind you where we had left off. Remember, we're in Revelation chapter 7. We're in this first interlude, the first of three at the seventh seal. The seventh seal, of course, will open up to the seven trumpet judgments. And my claim is that as we go into the seventh seal, and therefore the seven trumpets, we're going into the second half of the tribulation period. So I want you to recall where we had left off in Revelation 7.14, talking about this multitude that had been martyred for their faith in Jesus Christ. It says these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. Now, I spent some time, I'll point to the screen here, of going over this participle, the ones coming out. And remember, we looked at the fact that that was in the present tense. The idea is that it focuses on process. And so the idea then that was being conveyed was that there's a process in which you have people being martyred out of the last three and a half years. It's not a reference to a one-time rapture, but a process of believers being killed and therefore going to be with the Lord. Does that make sense? I think that's the best reading of the passage. Now, notice where they're coming out of the Great Tribulation, and that's used by Jesus Christ in his Olivet Discourse to refer to the last three and a half years of Daniel's 70th week. Recall, we had looked at that in Matthew 24, 21 through 22, where Jesus said, For then there will be great tribulation, such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now. Now let's stop there. If something has never occurred until the, from the beginning of the world until now, you can say that that's the worst time ever. So when is the worst time ever? It's the last three and a half years. He says, nor ever will. It'll be the worst ever, because after that it's cut short by Jesus Christ coming by him setting up his millennial kingdom. So that's why we could know, yeah, it ties in very nicely with the last three and a half years. He says, unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Now, one of the questions I was asked quite often last time was, well, what about the first three and a half years? Does this mean that believers are not murdered or killed for their faith in the first three and a half years? No, I think certainly believers will die in the first three and a half years. Let me show you evidence of that. Turn your Bibles back to Revelation chapter 6, verse 9. Revelation 6, 9. I'll probably read through verse 11. Revelation 6, 9. It said, When the Lamb broke the sixth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God, and because of the testimony which they had maintained. So let's stop there. So verse 9 shows us 
that there are Christians who being, are being killed for their faith in Jesus Christ, and that's occurring in the first three and a half years. I think the six seals line up very nicely with what are called the beginning of birth pangs. Remember we showed that in its relationship to the Olivet Discourse? So therefore we can conclude that, yes, there are certainly believers that are being killed during this time period. Okay, let me continue reading. It says in verse 10, They cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell upon the earth? Now let's stop there. Remember that phrase? Those who dwell upon the earth is used exclusively for whom? For unbelievers. That's right. Well, then in verse 11, here's the answer. And there was given to each of them a white robe, and they were told that they should rest a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren. Let's stop there. The fellow servants are the brethren. It's appositional. The brethren are whom? Believers. So it's, it's basically about fellow believers, and it says who were to be killed even as they had been would be completed also. So you see then in the first three and a half years, certainly there are going to be Christians who die, but it's greatly accelerated in the last three and a half, the great tribulation. That's how I think we should think of it. Okay? So does that make sense? So what I'm showing you now as far as a timing indicator goes is when we go into the seventh seal, we're getting into the seven trumpets, and we're really turning from the first three and a half years, and we're going now into the last three and a half. I think that that's how we should understand this time frame within the book of Revelation. All right? So the last three and a half years then covers a lot more territory. In other words, there's more written on the last three and a half years than there is the first three and a half. All right? And by the way, that's what Jesus did in his all of a discourse. He did the same thing. He wrote more on the last three and a half than he does on the first. Okay, now, with that, we're going to show you that God tabernacles with his people. And so when people are dying who belong to Jesus Christ by faith, they're going to be with him. They're going to have security and safety. And this is very beautiful. Let me read the passage and I'll comment. Revelation seven fifteen through 17, it says, For this reason, now stop there. For this reason ties back to verse 14, where the martyrs had been washed in the blood of the Lamb. In other words, they had been saved. They had been made pure and righteous before God. And it's for this reason, it says, they are before the throne of God, and they serve him night, excuse me, day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. They will hunger no longer, nor thirst any more, nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. For the lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd and will guide them to springs of the water of life and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. Isn't that beautiful? Now, first of all, notice in the beginning in verse 15, it says, they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple. Well, now remember, these are people who are not resurrected yet. So this tells us something that even in the non-resurrected sphere, In the spiritual sphere, remember to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord, it still means we have a conscious existence where, in fact, we're even going to be serving God. And so this shows us then that heaven isn't just this meaningless sitting on a a cloud strumming a harp, but it's very meaningful. We're going to be working and serving God. And this is a service then that's not going to be frustrated anymore by the curse. 
and so our work will be productive. Just think your 401k will never take a hit. You won't have to worry about sick days and wrestling with pagan bosses. You're going to be serving the king. And so if you don't like work now, you're really going to like it someday. The curse will be removed. And just think of the time pressure. The fact that we all die puts time pressure. You feel it in life. You say, wow, I spent seven years of my life in that company. And look at what do I have to show for it. But in eternity, you're serving the king. And you can serve him for 700 years. And there's no time pressure. Isn't that beautiful? I tell you, this is very exciting, the fact that you and I have the best to look forward to. And so if you're having difficulty in work this week or this month, or maybe you've had difficulty in work since the day you began, and when you got out of high school or what have you, take courage. The best is yet to come. Notice there's also something very interesting. It says that they serve him day and night in his temple. And his temple, I think, really serves as a timing indicator. The reason I say that is because we know, according to Revelation 4.2, that the temple that's being referred to was the temple that John saw standing in heaven. Remember, the door stands open and he sees the throne. And he says that the throne was standing in heaven. Okay, so the throne that's being talked about in the temple is in heaven. Now, why is that important? Well, it shows us this is something that's occurring prior to the millennial kingdom. You see, when Jesus returns... He's going to have his temple in Jerusalem. But has Jesus returned? No, we don't see that until Revelation chapter 19. I've already laid out that the book of Revelation from chapter 4 all the way to 22 is chronological. So certainly this temple is not the millennial kingdom temple, and it certainly can't be the temple in the eternal states when we have the new heavens, the new earth, and the new Jerusalem. Why? Because according to Revelation 21, 22, There is no temple then. God and the Lamb will be the temple within the New Jerusalem for the people of God. So this clues us in that this is during the 70th week of Daniel. This is something that's happening prior to the millennial kingdom. So I think it helps us give a a timing indicator. Now, here comes the coup de grace. Notice those phrases that are highlighted in red where it says, He who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. This is one of the great promises that goes all the way back to the Old Testament, the fact that God would dwell with us. His desire that we would dwell with him, that he would dwell with us. And what you're going to see here in the book of Revelation is this tabernacling is not some temporary tenting where God comes down and then he departs as in the incarnation. But this is going to be a permanent tabernacling. In fact, notice the language also that's highlighted in the bottom. He says he's going to have the lamb here in the center of the throne. He will be their shepherd and will guide them to springs of the water of life. All of this language comes from the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, this great Feast of Tabernacles was something that was promised in the Old Testament, and it alludes to God's provision for his people. So think about in the Old Testament, you had God dwelling with his people in the wilderness. Remember, he takes them out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Well, they're going to die in the wilderness. They have no food and they have no water. They are without life. But how is it that these people can survive? First of all, they beat the greatest army ever. Then they go into the wilderness where there's no food and water. How can they survive? Because their God is tabernacling 
with them. That's how they survive. And so what God has them do then in Leviticus 23 is he commemorates this. He says, you're going to always celebrate the Feast of Booths to remember that I'm the God who tabernacled with you and gave you life. That's what he has them do. So what's so beautiful is the Feast of Tabernacles functions much like our Lord's Supper. Today we're going to have the Lord's Supper. And remember it says, as often as you do this, you eat the bread and you drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death, that's what he did in the past, until he comes. That's the future. That's what we're remembering. Remembering at the Lord's Supper both what he did and what he's going to do. In the same way, the Feast of Tabernacles commemorates what God did for his people. He brought them life. But it foreshadows this idea of the Messianic age where God will dwell with his people forever. And we're not just going to have temporary life in the wilderness, but eternal life in the kingdom. That's what this is foreshadowing. So not only do we see it in Leviticus 23, but we see the great promise of the Feast of Tabernacles then talked about as far as the fulfillment in the future Messianic kingdom. We see that talked about oftentimes in the prophets. And I want you to turn now with me to Isaiah chapter 4. Because when we go, I'm just giving you some representative examples. Isaiah talks often about the fulfillment of this feast because God will dwell with his people in the Messianic age. So turn your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 4. We'll look at verses 2 through 6. And then I'll show you later Isaiah chapter 49. Isaiah chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. You're, see, you're going to see the same language that you see presented here in the book of Revelation. So as everyone turned there, Isaiah 4, 2 through 6, notice it begins, it says, in that day. Now I'm going to take this part by part. Now let's stop there. In that day is often a reference to the day of the Lord. Either the day of the Lord that occurs in the near term in the prophet's day, or the day of the Lord that will occur one day in the future where God will reign from Jerusalem. So remember all of the near term judgments that happen, whether it's the judgment that the Assyrians bring upon Israel or the Babylonians upon Judah or the judgments upon Babylon or Assyria, those are all foreshadowings of the ultimate day of the Lord that will occur in the future. Okay, so when we look at that in that day, the day of the Lord is in view. Now, what I'm going to contend here is, is in Isaiah 4, 2 through 6, clearly it's the future day of the Lord the day of the Lord that's still in our future. Because you'll see by the language, God is going to dwell with his people and they'll dwell securely. And that's really never occurred ultimately, finally and forever. He says, in that day, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious. Now, let's stop there. I mean, again, I'm going to go part by part. Who is the branch of Yahweh? Well, that's the Messiah, isn't it? The Messiah specifically refers to his kingly and his priestly functions. But notice here, oftentimes we see the branch of Yahweh, for, for example, in Isaiah 11. He's referred to as a descendant of David, right? So there's a human lineage behind this branch. This branch is going to grow out of this family lineage of David. But yet here, he's described not as the branch of David, but as the branch of Yahweh. 
And so this shows us then that the ancestry to this branch is not just a human ancestry, but there's a divine ancestry too. Wow. A divine ancestry and a human ancestry? Remember in Isaiah 11, 1 through 10, in verse 1, the branch of Yahweh is a shoot from the stem of Jesse. But in verse 10, he's the root of Jesse. In Isaiah 11, 1, he's the one who comes from Jesse, from David. But in Isaiah eleven ten, he is the source of David. And so you start to put all of this together, and this is the Messiah. He's the God-man, truly man, truly God in one person. That's why in Isaiah 9, remember, he says, unto us a son is born. And what is his name? Eternal God, right? Or mighty God, eternal father, prince of peace. So he's all these things. He's truly man, truly God. So that's who the branch is. And when it talks about, notice it says in here that it says, where is it? I've lost my place. He will, oh, it will be beautiful and glorious. Beautiful and glorious. That's the nature of the messianic reign. It's not going to be dull. It's not going to be ugly. It's not going to be temporary. It's going to be beautiful and glorious. Now, I don't know what kind of images come to your mind, but to me, when I think of glory, I always think of that sunset in the West when you're sitting on your dock or out on a day and you say, wow, this is glorious. This is, I've never seen anything like it. And that's the way the messianic age is depicted. It's going to be glorious. The presence of God, the beauty of God. Wow. Notice it goes on. It says, and the fruit, it talks about this fruit or literally the vegetation of the earth will be the pride and the adornment of the survivors of Israel. Now, let's stop there for a moment. The fruit there, the vegetation, that's the abundance that occurs in the Messianic age. So again, the curse is going to be reversed. That's all being depicted. Why? Because God will be in the midst, the curse will be removed, and even the earth will bring forth fruit and vegetation like it never has. So this is certainly describing then something that has never occurred on the earth since the fall. It's never occurred. Now, in verse 3, it says, It will come about that he who is left in Zion, so these are for the remnant, and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who is recorded for life in Jerusalem. Now, who is recorded for life? Well, God's elect. So this is for God's elect. And then it says in verse 4, when. Now, stop there. In verse 4, you have this conditional particle that's used in Hebrew. The term is im. And it's, when it's used, it often denotes something that is absolutely certain. When. When something is going to happen, it's going to be certain that this event will occur, but what's uncertain is the timing. Well, you know, isn't that interesting? That's how we depicted the 70th week of Daniel. In our age, we know it's going to occur, but we don't know when. In the same way, that's how the day of the Lord was depicted all the way back in Isaiah's day. When will it come about? Well, we don't know. We know that it will come about. Okay, so... He goes on, he says, when the daughters, excuse me, when the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and purged the bloodshed of Jerusalem from her midst by the spirit of judgment and the spirit of burning, then the Lord will create over the whole area of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day, even smoke in the brightness of a flaming fire by night. Now stop there. Where do you see this imagery 
of a cloud by day and smoke and a fire by night? In the Exodus. So now we're going back to the wilderness. And what was the wilderness? Wanderings all about God being in the presence of his people and giving them life. And so the Feast of Tabernacles was commemorating that very thing. That if God was not in the presence of his people, they would not live. But because he is in their presence, because he tabernacles with them, they have life. And so right away you see Exodus 13 come to play. It's a cloud by day, even smoke, and the brightness of flaming fire by night. For over all will the glory, excuse me, for over all the glory will be a canopy. Now, stop there. The term canopy, the term, do you see, does everyone have that in their Bible, by the way? Are there other translations? I'm sorry? Covering, yeah, covering, canopy. The term in Hebrew is kuppah. It has to do with the marriage chamber. So this is a marriage chamber, literally. Now, who are we described as often as the church? We're the bride of Christ. And so here what's going to be created is this marriage chamber, and it's over Zion. And so the marriage chamber exists for the bride, for his people. Isn't that beautiful? So that's this idea of shelter. Now, notice he goes on in verse 6. He says, there will be a shelter to give shade from the heat by day and refuge and protection from the storm and the rain. The term shelter there is the term sukkah, which is where we get our term sukkoth or the feast of booths. It's directly taken from Leviticus 23, 34, the feast of tabernacles. So right there in verse 6, you see this direct allusion back to the feast of tabernacles that those who die in Jesus Christ are going to tabernacle with him, and so they're going to have what? They're going to have life, just as the Israelites did in the wilderness. They're going to have life. So that's what it's alluding to here in Revelation 7, 15 through 17. Now, notice this phrase in verse 16 where it says, They will hunger no longer, nor thirst any more. It says, Nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. You already see that alluded to here. But turn your Bibles ahead in Isaiah Chapter 49, verse 10. Again, Isaiah 49, 10. This is again about the messianic age, this millennial kingdom. Isaiah 49, 10. Now, in Isaiah 49, 10, you're in the servant section where the servant is going to do these things, the servant of Yahweh, who is Yahweh himself. This is the arm of Yahweh. It's the Messiah. Bob Dway and I are reading a book from this Michael Heiser and Michael Heiser calls the Messiah often the second Yahweh, right? He's often depicted that way. And this is the result of the work of the second Yahweh that's depicted. Not that there's two Yahwehs, but it's the second member of the Trinity when you unpack it. It says, they will no longer, excuse me, they will not hunger or thirst, nor will the scorching heat or sun strike them down. For he who has compassion on them will lead them and will guide them to what? To springs of water. Well, there's the reference to water again. Well, where did the Israelites need water? Well, it was in the wilderness. It goes back to the Exodus and the wilderness wanderings. And so when we look at the Feast of Tabernacles, we have to realize that all of this is going to be fulfilled one day in the future kingdom. But it's also fulfilled for believers who die prior to the kingdom being inaugurated. It happens to every single believer when they go to be with the Lord. Now, who had the Leviticus 23, 34 through 44 reading? Noel. Everyone, if you will, uh, stop there. Everyone turn your Bibles 
to Leviticus 23, 34 through 44. What I'm going to show you is what this Feast of Tabernacles was all about. So we're going to begin by reading how God instituted it for the Israelites to commemorate the wilderness wanderings. Leviticus 23, 34 through 44. Go ahead, Noel. Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, On the 15th of the seventh month is the Feast of Booths for seven days to the Lord. Okay, stop right there. I'm sorry. Notice the Feast of Booths. That's the term sukkah, right? And it would be in the plural this time. So there's the Feast of Booths, right? And that was the same term that we saw in Isaiah 4 that we just read as we were talking about this shelter. It's not only like a marriage chamber, but it's like these booths. That will come about in the Messianic age. So, I'm sorry, keep reading. On the first day as a holy convocation, you shall do no laborious work of any kind. For seven days you shall present an offering by fire to the Lord. On the eighth day you shall have a holy convocation and present an offering by fire to the Lord. It is an assembly. You shall do no laborious work. Okay, now stop there. One thing I want to point out, notice back in verse 34, it says the 15th day of the seventh month. Now that's the 15th day of Tishri. Now does anybody remember what happens on the 10th day of that month? Well, that's the day of atonement, Yom Kippur. Okay, so what you have then is five days after the day of atonement, you have now the Feast of Tabernacles being instituted, and it goes for seven days. So I'm sorry. So go ahead, Noel. These are the appointed times of the Lord, which you shall proclaim as holy convocations, to present offerings by fire to the Lord, burnt offerings and grain offerings, sacrifices and drink offerings. Each day is a matter on its own day. Besides those of the Sabbaths of the Lord, and besides your gifts and besides all your votive and free will offerings, which you give to the Lord. On exactly the 15th day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the crops of the land, you shall celebrate the feast of the Lord for seven days. I'm sorry, stop there. Now, the ingathering that Noel just read there in Leviticus, the ingathering of the crops is not the grain. Because when did that happen? Well, that was brought in at Pentecost. Okay? So what's being referred to is this fruit, the vineyards type stuff, the, the grapes, the olives. Those are the types of fruit that's being talked about. Now, one of the images that's often associated with the messianic rain is this great increase in the abundance of this fruit. That's what, again, what we're reading about in Isaiah chapter 4 just previously. Okay, so that's the ingathering. And again, it shows and it symbolizes one day, not only did God produce that for his people in the wilderness, he, in other words, he fed them, but he does it while he's with them in Jerusalem, while they're his covenant people, and he's going to again do it in the future in the messianic age. So that's what this is all about. So keep reading. You shall celebrate the feast of the Lord for seven days with a rest on the first day, and a rest on the eighth day. Now on the first day you shall take for yourselves the foliage of beautiful trees, palm branches and boughs of leaf, leafy trees and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. Okay, stop there. Does everyone see the reference to palm branches? That's going to c- 
carry forward to Jesus' day. These palm branches are going to be used to celebrate the Feast of Booths. That's how they're going to create their booths oftentimes. Okay, so that's very important, these palm branches. Yeah, continue. You shall thus celebrate it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It shall be a perpetual statute throughout your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall live in booths for seven days. All the native born in Israel shall live in booths, so that your generations may know that I had the sons of Israel live in booths when I brought them out from the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So Moses declared to the sons of Israel the appointed times of the Lord. Thank you. So now notice there the purpose for all this. You shall dwell in booths, he says in verse 42, for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in booths. Verse 43, here's the purpose, that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in the booths when I took them out of the land of Egypt. I'm Yahweh, your God. That's the purpose. So let's think about it for just a moment. When we do the Lord's Supper that we're going to be doing today, one of the reasons we do this is to remember. We do the Lord's Supper so that we remember what the Lord has done through the sacrifice of his son. But again, it says as often as we do this, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. There's a future element to the promise. In the same way, the Feast of Tabernacles looks forward to the future as well in the Messianic age. And so I want to read you a little bit on my slide here. The Feast of Booths commemorated God's dwelling with his people during their journey in the wilderness, and it proclaimed the future Messianic age. That's what it did. And I want to show you evidence that it's not just about the past, but it's about the future as well. I want you to see that there's two big pieces of imagery, palm branches and water. Now, there's one more. It's lights, but we don't have time to get into that. Uh, Lights ends up being kind of a later development. But palm branches and water are symbols of the Feast of Tabernacles. These become very important symbols that the Israelis use. First of all, palm branches symbolize these booths that God dwelt with his people, or I should say they dwelt with him in the wilderness. So that's a look back. God dwelt with his people in the wilderness, but it's also a look forward where God will dwell with his people in the messianic age. That's what it's all about. Now, I want you to turn your Bibles to John 1.14. And I know Pat had this verse I had handed out earlier. And before you read it, Pat, I'll have everyone turn to John 1.14. What I want you to see now is when we go into the first century and Jesus is in his earthly ministry, he is going to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles with his people. In a sense, he's going to show that he is the fulfillment of it. But we see even in the opening chapters of John 1 that here Jesus comes to tabernacle with God's people. And so I want you to see that this term tabernacle is used in the New Testament five times. The term is skenao. And it's only used five times. Once you're going to see here in John 1.14. And then the other four occurrences are all in the book of Revelation. The first of which we just saw in Revelation 7.15. Okay, so I think that that shows you that, yes, in a sense, when Jesus comes, he's tabernacling, but it's a short-term tabernacling because he's going to ascend again to the Father. But there's a day that's coming where we will tabernacle with God forever. So go ahead and read, Pat. This is John 1.14, Jesus' incarnation 
is God tabernacling with men. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Wow. Let me just turn to that myself here. I'm slow on the draw. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So do you see the phrase dwelt among us, everyone? There's the term skenao, which means he tabernacled with us. He tented with us. And also notice it says, we have seen his glory, the, the glory as of the only son from the father. Some of your versions will say the only begotten. Now that's somewhat misleading. The term is monogenes, which simply means the unique one, one of a kind. So it doesn't mean that Jesus had a beginning as if he came into existence. The idea is that he is the unique son, the son that is, in fact, the branch that we were reading about in Isaiah 4. Truly man, truly God. That's the idea. So now he is seeing here then as dwelling with us, tabernacling. Now, when we fast forward then to Revelation 7.15, we see the same idea that when Christians die... They go to tabernacle with God. So you're going to be with him, not just for a short period of time, but you'll be with him forever. And now this will culminate in Revelation 21, verse 3, when you have the eternal states set up. And Pat has that verse as well. Here's Revelation 21, verse 3. This is about the future tabernacling with God. And I heard a loud, loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. Wow. That's, that's in the new Jerusalem. We have the new Jerusalem, the new heavens, the new earth. God is going to tabernacle with us, dwell with us forever. So that's where this all leads. Now, there's another piece of imagery that we have to think about, and that's water. This idea of water in the wilderness, of course. It's a look back. God gave drink to his people in the wilderness. If he had not, they would not have survived. We see that in Exodus chapter 17, that God gives the people drink. Remember, they grumbled against him. He has them strike the rock, and they are able to survive. They're given drink. But it also is a look forward. God's spirit would one day be poured out. Now, why would it be important that God's spirit would one day be poured out because it's through the Spirit of God that comes life. That's how we live. We live. Remember Jesus talking about the Word of God? He says we don't live by bread alone, man, but we live by every word that proceeds from the Father. In Him we live, move, and have our being. Yeah, Dina. And then in between Christ's first coming and the eternal state, we have the millennial kingdom. And in Zechariah, it talks about how the nations are going to go up from year to year to celebrate the Feast of Booths, the Sukkot. Beautiful. Exactly. I have that. You're perfect. We're going to read it. Yes. Amen. That's exa- you're, you're tracking with me. <laughs> very good. Very good, Dana. Yes, exactly right. It's very exciting. So, yeah, the, the imagery is all over the place. And that's what's so beautiful. Think about this. Think about in Genesis 2. I think it's verse 10, you have God send his waters from Eden. And what do they do? They water the garden. So there he's sustaining the people even back in the garden, his people. The people that he created, he sustains by pouring his water out. 
So later he's going to sustain and make his people survive because he pours his spirit out. Is everyone with me? So in, so in Genesis, he sustains his people by the waters. When you get to Exodus chapter 17, he sustains his people again through the water. And then he promises in Joel 2.28 through 29, one day in the future messianic age, he's going to pour out his what? His spirit. We're going to read that in just a bit here. Uh, in fact, why don't we read it now? Who's got the Joel 2.28 through 29? Yeah, Tim, listen to this. There's a net version. After all of this, I will pour out my spirit on all kinds of people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your elderly, elderly will have revelatory dreams. Your young men will see prophetic visions. Even on male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. Wow, thank you. So remember back in the book of Numbers, you had people that were zealous because they wanted only Moses to speak for God. And he says, no, that I wish that all God's people would prophesy. And so prophecy, of course, isn't just about coming up with extra biblical revelation. What it's really about is about the testimony of Christ. And one day the Spirit's going to be poured out as promised in Joel 2, 20 through 29. The term poured out is a term that's used of pouring out water. So again, God is ultimately going to sustain and give life to his people, not just physically, but also spiritually. Spiritually meaning that they're going to have eternal life. And so that's what's being alluded to there. Now, let's go to G. Oh, yeah, Christy, go ahead. Sorry, maybe I'm jumping ahead. Um, Would this be then where in John 7, Jesus is at the feast? Am I? Yeah, we're going to read that. Exactly. No, perfect. Go ahead, though. Well, just, yeah, it um, where he says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Exactly. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Amen. But this he spoke of the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive for the spirit was not yet given. And I just, you know, that's what you guys always say is the universal call. And then the inner call that just came to mind as you were talking about that. That's right. Well said. Yeah. So the spirit is going to bring life and who is the one who dispenses the spirit? We'll read Acts 2.33 in just a minute. Jesus is the one. So he does it in the messianic age. So that's why this idea of water in the Feast of Tabernacles was always looking forward to this Messianic age. So let's put that on hold for just a minute. Let's think about Jesus during his earthly ministry. Here, and you just read in John 7, he's there at the Feast of Tabernacles. So here's what would happen during the Feast of Tabernacles. And by the way, you can read about this from Alfred Edersheim. I know um, there's other scholars who have done a lot of good work in this arena. Uh, D.A. Carson has written a lot about the Feast of Tabernacles and how... Jesus would have understood it. So here's what would happen in Jesus' day. You have a seven-day feast. It's going to take place in Jerusalem. The headquarters, of course, is the temple. And the seven-day feast begins on the 15th day of Tishri, five days after the Day of Atonement. Now, every day of the feast, what you're going to have is in the morning, you're going to have a morning sacrifice. Well, what the priest would do is not necessarily the high priest, but a designated priest He's going to take what's called a golden flagon. It's basically a big vase that he can take pints of water. And he is going to take a huge procession of people, typically Israelite men, and he is going to go to the pool of Siloam, and he's going to dip this flagon in the water, and he's going to have this procession that he goes back to the temple, and he's going to pour it out on the altar. And as he's doing that, all of these Israelite men are crying out the Psalms of the Hallel the praise psalms from Psalm 114 all the way 
to Psalm 118. And so as they get to the altar, the plan is that they're singing now through Psalm 118. Now remember in Psalm 118, that's the verse that everyone's singing and crying out as Jesus comes in during his triumphal entry. Remember, blessed is he who comes in the name of Yahweh. Psalm 118.26, those are the last words that they're going to be singing as the priest is pouring out the water. The very water that symbolizes the spirit that the Messiah will dispense. And so it's all about the work of the Messiah. That these waters will flow from Jerusalem in the Messianic age. And so Jesus is on the scene. He is in Jerusalem. The Messiah who will cause the flow of living water to come from Jerusalem forever is on the scene and the vast majority of the people don't even know it. And that's the significance of what Christie's reading about. He cries out, I'm the living water. That's what it's all about. Now, think about this. In Matthew 23, remember the Pharisees and the religious leaders of Israel who should know who the Messiah is, they reject Christ and I think it's in Matthew 23, 39. Remember, he says, I leave to your house desolate. Your house is left to you desolate. Why? Because he's God. He's leaving. Just like in the days of Ezekiel where the, the glory of God departed to the Mount of Olives, Jesus is going to depart to the Mount of Olives from the temple. He's leaving it desolate. And he says, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of Yahweh. Psalm 118, 26, the very psalm that they're singing as the, the priest is pouring the water out during the Feast of Tabernacles. And so then the great day of the feast, the last day, you have a summary. And Jesus gives a summary of the whole feast, and it's found fulfilled in himself. And that's what Christie was reading about. Turn your Bibles to John chapter 7, verses 1 through 2. That gives us the setting. And then I'll read verses 37 through 39. John 7, verses 1 through 2. So think about all this beautiful imagery. This water symbolizes not only what God did in the past to bring life, but the Messianic age where you have life flowing from God. And so Jesus sees it all fulfilled in himself, rightly so. John 7, 1 through 2, it says, After these things Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now verse 2, it says, Now the feast of the Jews... The Feast of Booths was near. Now, let's stop there. Notice it's called the Feast of the Jews. That may be just John's way of describing this as a Feast of the Jews, but very often the Feast of Tabernacles was seen as the most significant feast. It's like our Christmas. You know, we can often say, well, Easter is much more significant than Christmas, but Christmas is so much more fun for our culture. That's kind of the way the Feast of Tabernacles was. Yes, if In fact, there's no Passover lamb, the celebration of Passover. There's going to be no Feast of Tabernacles. But the Feast of Tabernacles was so much more fun for the Israelites. Why? Because it's about victory. It's about reigning with God. And you know what? I'm okay with that. I'm okay with people wanting to say, you know, I want to look to the good news. Uh, So the Feast of Tabernacles was often referred to as the feast. That's why I think he's talking about the Feast of Booths as the feast of the Jews. Okay, now, turn to verse 37 now. It says, now on the last day, now there's debate as to whether that's the seventh or the eighth day. I don't think it matters. The point is, this is a summary. Christ is going to give the summary of the whole feast. Now, on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. 
He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. That's exactly what Christie was pointing out. The, the rivers of living water means that we have life. We have life that only the Messiah, God in the flesh, can give. It's a life that sustains us not only just temporarily, but one day forever. And he says, but this, he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So now John gives the timing. The reason why this hadn't been fulfilled yet is because Christ hadn't been glorified. So there's something about the glorification of Christ that ends up leading to the fulfillment of the Feast of Tabernacles, the pouring out of this water, that is the pouring of the Spirit. Now, who had, I know, Tim, you had Acts 2.33? Everyone turn your Bibles to Acts 2.33. Let me just remind you, this is the sermon that Peter's giving at Pentecost. And recall that he talks about here the fact that the Messiah is the one who receives the Spirit, which is very interesting because we often think of just us receiving the Spirit. But he receives it in order to pour him out. And so that would be the fulfillment then of this Feast of Tabernacles, at least a preliminary fulfillment. So go ahead, Tim. Go ahead and read Acts 2.33. Acts 2.33. So then, exalted to the right hand of God, and having received the promise of the Holy Spirit from the Father, he has poured out what you both see Stop and Stop right hear. there. Who poured it out? Say the pronoun again. He. So he poured it out. So he received it in order that he would pour it out. So go back to Isaiah 61 just real quick. Don't, don't turn there. But just think about it. Isaiah 61 says, The Spirit of Yahweh is upon me to proclaim good news to the poor. So the Messiah then is the one who is uniquely endowed with the Spirit. He is attached to the work of the Spirit. The Spirit brings confession of the Messiah. When the Messiah goes to heaven, he pours out the Spirit upon his people. And so that's what, we're, that's what Tim's reading there. Acts 2.33, Jesus is the one who dispenses the Spirit, the true waters that are being poured out upon God's people. So yeah, read it again. So then, exalted to the right hand of God, and having received the promise of the Holy Spirit from the Father, he has poured out what you both see and hear. Wow. So there you go. So the, it's being poured out, the Holy Spirit. Now, that's not the end. That's just the preliminary fulfillment that Christ gives to the fulfillment of the Feast of Tabernacles. Let's go to the passage that Dana was alluding to. Turn your Bibles to Zechariah 14, verses 8 through 9. I want you to see how this Feast of Tabernacles goes all the way through the whole scope of history. Zechariah 14 is depicting a day when all the nations will surround Jerusalem for battle. We'll see that in Revelation 19, so there's a correlation. But here in Zechariah 14, there's going to be victory. God is going to overcome them when he sends the Messiah. And so it's depicting this day. Zechariah 14, verses 8 through 9. Notice it says, and in that day. So now again you have that phrase, that day. Probably a reference to the day of the Lord. In that day, living waters will flow out of Jerusalem. Half of them toward the eastern sea and the other half toward the western sea. It will be in summer as well as in winter. And Yahweh will be king over all the earth. And in that day, Yahweh will be the only one and his name the only one. So let's just stop there for a moment. 
So let's ask the question. You have these living waters that are flowing out of Jerusalem. Should we understand them as real? Are there really going to be waters flowing from Jerusalem? Or should we see this as symbolic? Well, from God, the Spirit comes. Now, here's the way I think we should cut the Gordian knot. I think we should say it's both. There's no reason to think that there aren't literal waters that will flow from Jerusalem, but they symbolize something. They symbolize that the ultimate source of life is Yahweh who reigns from Jerusalem. In fact, let me just read this to you. I don't want you to turn to it for the sake of time. Jeremiah 2.13, God says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, that's Yahweh, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. So Yahweh is the source of living water. He's the source of life. But I think we should take these waters then as symbolic, but also it's literal water. So literal waters, I think, will flow from Jerusalem, but they symbolize something greater than just the waters themselves. Now, one of the reasons I think we can know that they're really waters is because in Ezekiel 47, they flow to the east and the west. And in fact, as they flow to the east, according to Ezekiel chapter 47, the Dead Sea will one day come alive again. The Dead Sea, if you go float in it now, that's dead as a doornail. It's boring. Everybody wants to go to the Dead Sea. I'm like, when I was in Israel, I was like, it's pretty dead. <laughs> Not much to see. I mean, we got better stuff in Minnesota. But there's a day that's coming when Messiah is reigning, that there's life. That there's life. And so the waters literally will flow and they'll bring life even to the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea will come alive because the origin of all life is dwelling in the midst of his people. That's the fulfillment of the Feast of Tabernacles. And so when it says then in uh, Revelation 7.15 that people who die because of their faith in Christ, tabernacle with their God, you can bet that they're secure. Isn't that wonderful news? By the way, turn your Bibles ahead one more time in Zechariah. I want you to see one more thing in Zechariah 14 about this Feast of Tabernacles. Zechariah 14, 16, it says, Then it will come about that any who are left of all the nations that went against Jerusalem. Now let's stop there. That's the great war where all the nations gather against Jerusalem. That's what we're going to be reading about in Revelation chapter 16 through 19. Okay, so this is parallel. So of all those who are survivors of that battle, who are going up against the Lord, it says they will come up from year to year to worship the king, Yahweh of hosts, and to celebrate what feast? The Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths. God will reign with his people and they will dwell securely forevermore. In fact, no longer will you see Palestinians pelting Jews on the way to the temple. They're going to live securely, those who at least trust in Messiah. People who trust in the Messiah will dwell securely with their God. That's what is being promised for even those who die now and during the tribulation. That's what God promises. Now, let me relate it to the sermon that Bob is going to give today in 1 John 1.1. He's going to be talking about the apostles, Oops, sorry, our French fries, I think, are done. You always hear that in McDonald's. The beef, the French fries are done. <laughs> French fries must be done. They're hot. Uh, Bob is going to be talking about in 1 John 1, 1, the eyewitnesses, they saw the Messiah, they heard him, 
There was tangibility when God came to dwell with his people. And so isn't it beautiful to think that in the Messiah's coming, God is coming to tabernacle with us. We had eyewitnesses to those facts. But one day when you and I die, we go to tabernacle with him. We go to live with him. And so there's great security then for the people of God. And so the question I want to pose to everyone who's listening, everyone here today, is will you tabernacle with God? Let me show you the imagery. Yes, the Feast of Tabernacles is all over the book of Revelation. Revelation 7, 9, you had the very beginning of this passage about this great multitude. Look at what it says. It says they had palm branches in their hand. Now, you and I can read, well, they have palm branches in their hand. We can yawn and we can move on. But what are the palm branches all about? They're about tabernacling with God. That's how they built their, their booths. These people are celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles in the heavenly throne room. Revelation 7.15, God spreads his tabernacle over them. Right? You see the imagery all over the place. You have in Revelation 7.17, Jesus leads them to what? To living waters. Just as he did in the wilderness, just as he will do in the millennial kingdom. It's all over the place. We already read Revelation 21, verses 1 through 3, where one day in the new heavens, the new earth, and new Jerusalem, God will tabernacle with us forever. And I think this is what David is alluding to. In Psalm 27, 4 through 5, he said, One thing I have asked from Yahweh, that I shall seek life, that I may dwell in the house of Yahweh all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of Yahweh and to meditate in his temple. For in the day of trouble, the day of trouble, he says, he will conceal me in his tabernacle In the secret place of his tent, he will hide me. He will lift me up on a rock. Let's stop there. What's this day of trouble? I think it can be any day in a sense. There's going to be the day of trouble, the day of the Lord. But for each person, there's a day of trouble when they will die. There's a day of trouble when people will be under the wrath of God in the day of the Lord. But for those who belong to Jesus Christ by faith, you can say as David did, For in the day of trouble, he will conceal me in his booth. He's going to hide me. No longer will you be subject to enemies. No longer will you ever be subject to the wrath of God. You're going to be tabernacling with God. Now, how does that occur? It occurs through faith in the Son. Why do you need faith in Jesus? Because every single one of us are sinners who have sinned and violated God's holy law. But in the person of Jesus Christ, God's perfection came. He lived a perfect life that none of us could so that by faith in him, his righteousness could be clothed upon us. But he also went to a cross and on the cross, he took himself on himself the full measure of God's wrath so that you and I could tabernacle with him. That's what Jesus Christ did for us. And so the question is, will you tabernacle with God? The real question is, have you believed in the son? And if you believed in the son, That means you will tabernacle with God, and that means then believers have nothing to fear. Think about Psalm 116, 15. Precious in the sight of Yahweh is the death of the godly ones. How could that be true if, in fact, there was something that he had to purge from us? If, in fact, there was a purgatory, as the Catholics maintain, that he really isn't pleased with us until we have more punishment to come upon us, how could he say this? Precious in the sight of Yahweh is the death of his godly ones. But the fact is, we are precious in his sight because we're clothed in the sun. Because he came to tabernacle with us, 
and we trusted in him, we will tabernacle with him one day. So we are precious when we die in the sight of God. And that's why Paul, remember Paul, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he saw the glories of heaven. So beautiful were they that he wasn't even allowed and permitted to speak about them. And notice what he says here in 2 Corinthians 5, 5 through 8. He says, now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave to us the spirit as a pledge. So the spirit is just a pledge, a down payment. Therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. So if you die, even before the coming day of the Lord, the 70th day of Daniel or 70th week of Daniel, before the rapture, if you die, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And what we read today is those who are present with the Lord are serving him day and night. So they're conscious. It's not that you're just in some sleep. It's not that you're on some harp just strumming meanlessly, aimlessly, uh, you know, looking at like static on your TV. It's not going to be that. It's going to be a purposeful existence. To be absent from the body is to be tabernacling with God. But notice how we are to believe it. Are we to see signs of it? Are we going to have evidence of this somehow physically? Are we going to see something in the clouds? No, he says, for we walk by faith, not by sight. So we believe this, not because we see it. You don't have anything tangible. You're not going to see a sign in the moon, the blood moons and super moons and whatever moon you can come up with. It's not going to help you. You're not going to see it in the grass or the liver of an animal, or you're not going to know it through some sign that God pours out from heaven. Jesus said, a wicked and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but none will be given to it. Do we believe it? So then what are we left with? So we're left to walk by faith. That's how we live. We live by faith in the word of God. That because God said this, that we will tabernacle with him, and it's really going to be that good, we can believe it. And because we can believe it, you can get up on those Monday mornings when it seems hopeless with your boss, with your work, with your job, perhaps with life. Perhaps some of you have some dire physical circumstances you're dealing with. Live by faith. Live by your instrument panel. Don't go by feelings. That's what we have. We've got our instrument panel. Just as I had to live, I had to live on my instrument panel. If I didn't stay there, I died. And everyone else, you'd read about us in the newspaper. Everyone else in the airplane dies too. The guy in the front hits first, that's all. (laughs) We have to live by the objective evidence from the scriptures. That's what we have. Okay, brothers and sisters, be assured today that if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, the moment you breathe your last, God looks at it as a precious thing. You're ushered into his presence, and you will dwell with him forevermore, even prior to the rapture. Brothers and sisters, that's exciting. I'm excited about it. I tell you, I get to work with Bob this week. And I was kind of down. I was like, oh, boy, my kid is sick, and I'm hacking and coughing and allergies, and I was just dealing with sick, sick, sick all the time. Little guy can't sleep. I get over to Bob. Bob's all excited about the objective word of God. And thanks, Bob. It just pulled me right out of my slumbers, and I started working again. We were doing radio on Friday. we got to do radio on Friday more often because whatever brings me down, it brings me back up. Why? Because he was excited about Scripture. I love working with Bob because it's all about living and walking by faith, not by sight. And so thank you, Bob. Now, let me leave you with this. I want to talk about the promise of resurrection. How does it relate? And if we don't have time to finish this, we'll just hit this. 
I want you to see this relationship of resurrection to the relationship of tabernacling. The reason I say this is because there's often confusion. People say, well, wait a minute. How is this rapture? How do I get resurrected? I mean, it seems like you're saying the resurrection on the one hand happens before the day of the Lord, but then there's a resurrection, what, for people after the day of the Lord or before the millennial kingdom? How does this all work out? Well, let me just remind you of one important fact, and I think this is what we'll have to leave with before I put this even up. Notice the 70th week. Again, the 70th week of Daniel is the last seven years. It begins here. We don't know when this will happen. This is the three-and-a-half-year mark where the Antichrist puts himself up in the temple. And this is the point where Jesus Christ, after the battle of Armageddon, comes and he brings his kingdom. Right? Now, what I'm claiming, again, is that this whole seven years, often referred to as a seven-year tribulation period, is, should be seen as the parousia. The parousia is the technical term for the second advent of Christ. Okay? Now, here's why I want you to see the parousia is not just a one-day, 24-hour event. It's not just one day. We know it's multiple days. Notice here in Luke 17, 26, you have this passage written by Luke, inspired. And he says, so as the days of Noah, so will be the days of the Son of Man. Notice the plural days. Well, that identical phrase is used in the Greek. I mean, it is word for word identical. That Matthew records Jesus saying the same thing, but under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Matthew changes one word. It's the same meaning, but there's just one word change. Matthew 24, 37, he says, So as in the days of Noah, so will be the parousia of the Son of Man. So you see then the parousia is synonymous with the plural days. Does everyone see that? So parousia is synonymous with the plural days. And so what I'm saying is that this whole 70 week are the days of the Messiah, the days of the Son of Man, which is synonymous with the parousia. And so sure enough, doesn't then it not make sense that those, as it said in Revelation 3.10, who had kept the word of the Messiah, he will keep them from the hour of trial. So you have a rapture and therefore a resurrection at the beginning of the parousia. But then you're going to have people who come to faith during that time period. And in Revelation chapter 20, verse 4, you're going to see that those who were beheaded for the name of Christ during that whole 70th week, they're going to come to life. They're going to be raised too, and they're going to reign. And so the whole parousia is bracketed by resurrection. My only point today is to show you when we're talking about the tabernacle, tabernacling with God, is that even if you die prior to the rapture, so in other words, if you and I die prior to Jesus Christ coming, we're dying over here somewhere, right? We're still going to tabernacle with God. You're still going to have conscious, purposeful existence with him. But let's say you have a loved one who becomes a believer and they happen to survive. If they die as a believer here, they're going to tabernacle with God. But resurrection is also coming to everyone. So this resurrection and this resurrection are all part of what's called the first resurrection. The first resurrection isn't necessarily about a quantity. It's about a quality. Those who have part of the first resurrection, the second death has no part over them. So that's how conceptually we can think of the parousia. The parousia is the 70th week of Daniel, which is bracketed by the first resurrection. One is to keep those who had kept the word of Yahweh from the hour of trial. The second is to reward those who came to faith and were beheaded for the sake of his testimony. They will also reign. 
but no matter when you die, you will tabernacle with God. All right, so that's what I wanted to leave you with. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these great promises, Lord, that all those who die in you will live with you. All those who have trusted in your Son will one day tabernacle with you forever, that we will be spared from the scorching sun, that we will never thirst anymore, that you'll wipe away every tear. I pray for my brothers and sisters who have to slug it out in the difficult days of a generation that hates your word, that hates the things of God. I pray for their stamina, Lord, that these great promises would sink deeply into their soul, that they would remember that these things are true, that the scriptures promise wonderful things so that they can persevere, Lord. So I pray for this to be an encouragement for all those who are weary. I pray, Lord, that we remember these things through your word, that we persevere to this last day, the day that you come again and tabernacle with us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.